Dr. Daniel James Sundahl is a Minnesotan and a Scandinavian by birth and temperament. And I think that was going to, I was trying to figure out what exactly that meant, even as a Norwegian. And I think that means you probably also like kumkaka and pickled herring. But uh, these days, he's hard at work at retirement and reflecting. He has undergraduate degrees from Gustavus Adolphus College in St. Peter. Gustavus. I've been mispronouncing that for years. Um, And I used to teach history. All right. In St. Peter, Minnesota, where he played a bit of football and baseball. And also from Northern Arizona University, where he met his wonderful wife, Ellen Francis, who many of you know. And whom he has now lived for 43 years. His graduate degrees, both his MA and PhD, are in the United States US or in United States intellectual history, both from the University of Utah in Salt Lake City. And prior to retirement, he taught at Hillsdale College in Michigan for 33 years, and from 1993 until 2013, he was the Russell Amos Kirk Chair in American Studies. He, while at Hillsdale, he was the second recipient of the Emily Daughtry Award for Teaching Excellence and was the six-time nominee for Professor of the Year, a nomination politely declined. Um, he has also published and lectured wildly, or not wildly, widely, maybe wildly as well. Um, but I would also be amiss if I didn't point out that he was also notorious at Hillsdale College for his biting wit. Um, and actually, the very first, while I was still in high school and my brother was already at Hillsdale, I heard stories about the professor who would often, on the back of very bad essays, staple McDonald's applications. Um, because I, I think he caused many a student to scurry off to their safe space, um, which I was also thinking about, if you know anything about Hillsdale College, probably consisted of watching... Um, I was going to say Ronald Reagan videos on YouTube is the student safe space. But anyway, um, in 2015, um, upon his retirement, him and his wife moved to Greer, South Carolina, and are parishioners at Prince of Peace. So we are lucky to have um, a man of his stature. He's also an accomplished fly fisherman. And um, I'm looking forward to hearing him talk about religious liberty in the public square. So thank you, Dan. What's a good size to the crowd? I had expected maybe 15 to 20 people. So I'm very surprised, and thank you. Well, welcome to this public square, this reassuring place of kindness and civility. I think you folks probably risked life and limb traffic to arrive here. That's why I want to thank you. Thanks also to Tim for that introduction, which is a blessing to St. Mary's for hosting. And I want to make equal thanks to Father Tomlinson, seated over there, for asking me, as he said, to do something for the parish. (laughs) I won't tell you how it came about. And again, my wife of 43 years is over here, and I'd like to recognize her because she too is a blessing. There's some serendipity, but this morning's email when I opened it up, was from Nate Jeb, a graduate of mine, now married and with two happy children. He said he was just reminiscing about lessons that he had learned. 
Well, as know, it took me back to December of 2014, which was my last day of teaching. I'd spend a couple of weeks just slowly cleaning out the office, that fine little public square of my own that students had come over time to call the apartment for its coziness. So the books were all boxed and hauled away and stored, and the memorabilia also carefully, carefully stored. But the place was empty that day, and I was sitting in that office counting my blessings. I had counted back over the years and figured that I had taught nearly 6,000 students, mostly above average, some well above average, and also, by the way, a lot of grading. And so I was wondering, too, that time, uh, what good have I done all these years when daily I made my way out into that educational public square? And who would not, by the way, look for that kind of reassurance on one's very, very last day? Then there was a knock on the door, and when I opened it, lo, guess who was there? It was Nate Jeb. He said to me, are you ready to go? And I thought, maybe that's not Nate, maybe that's the angel of mercy. <laughs> so I took off all my college keys and key ring, placed them on the desk as I had been instructed to do, and then I wrapped myself up in my trench coat. Nate took my old ratty blue scarf, he wrapped it around my neck and then tucked it in, and then he helped me shoulder my equally beat up old briefcase. And we walked out of my office together. I heard the door click, locked shut behind me for the last time. And so down the hallway and then out the front door to the sidewalks, and Nate held the door open for me, and then he stepped aside. And there in that college public square was an undulating line, a gauntlet of people, maybe 400. Students past and present, colleagues, townspeople, friends, and so I Norwegianly, blushingly walked that gauntlet, collecting well wishes, handshakes, hugs, cards, and even some flowers. And I walked all around that public square and was greeted with an intimacy, and so I came to know that I was blessed. And then the public square of the classroom, also that day for the last time, where there was even more commotion, and where those students, past and present, had found that disco ball to hang from the ceiling of the classroom that day, I don't know. But there it was, and there were lots of stories. Streamers, baked goods, Sunny D orange juice, music from Rachel on the accordion, and then it would go like this. Dr. Sundell, do you remember the time that you did? And I would have to say, well, I've repented from that one. And you know that all those students inside that classroom someday had found blue scarves, and every single one of them had a blue scarf wrapped around the neck. And so I knew again that I was blessed. Well, it's note that same night in Michigan, it being December, and the next day I was up bright and early to clean the driveway, 175 feet, John Deere 24-inch snowblower, and it continued to snow in so late morning I got up and I cleared the driveway. Then mid-afternoon, I got up and I cleaned the driveway again. <laughs> About 9 p.m. that night, with some lights on, I toddled back out into the Michigan gloom. 
And as it happened then, as I was out there, the snowblower ran out of gas at the far end of that 175-foot driveway. And so I trudged back to get the gas can, and speeding down that country road came that country snowplow. And lo, that John Deere was blown over and covered with more slush than you can possibly imagine. And I can still hear the howls of demonic laughter from the fellow driving that county snowplow as he slushed his way down that country road. And I remember myself thinking at that very, very moment in that snowy Michigan gloom, maybe I'm not blessed. <laughs> Four months later, we sold our home and removed ourselves from Michigan to our new public square of Greer, South Carolina. We did not take the 24-inch John Deere snowblower with us. We left that blessing with the brand new homeowner. So Father Tomlinson asked me to speak on religious liberty and the public square. He also gave me some other options, but they were lower down his list. You'll see on your outline that I have created for you now, there are seven parts to what I'm going to talk about, and also two epigrams to begin. One comes from Walter Lippmann in a book of his published in 1922 called Public Opinion. There can be no liberty for a community which lacks the means to detect lies. And then one from Mark 16, 15, the Great Commission. Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. So part one now is titled News from Gopher Prairie, Religious Release Time Education. There's a small town in southwestern Minnesota which once had a population of 350 stout souls, Scandinavians and Germans, one or two Bohemian families, one family of French origin, but only one, which most people thought was enough. And the whole population now, second and third generation descendants from the original immigrants, the place now, though, suffering a slow demise and soon to be blown away by another Canadian blizzard sweeping down from those Saskatchewan prairies. Now, surrounding that town were farms, the homesteads, and townships with names like Amo and Rose Hill and country churches with Methodist and Lutheran, and every single one of them with the country cemetery and a softball field well lit on summer nights and smack dab in the middle of those cornfields. On the western end of Main Street in Gopher Prairie, just across from the lovely city park, shaded by the most majestic of elm trees, was the public school, grades 1 through 12, farm kids and town kids. Now, if you could imagine for a moment just hovering above that little bitty town on a Thursday when the school year was in session, you would see at 11 o'clock in the morning crowds of young people exiting the school and meandering east up Main Street. So these young folks would, first of all, pass by old Spike Scarson's blacksmith shop. And he, a sooty kind of man in a greasy leather apron and a hook-like prosthetic device. He was a drinker, you know, about a fifth of whiskey a day. And he chain-smoked until the whole business finally killed him at age 95. 
And his wife lived nearly that long, too, with a parade of hairless chihuahuas, small enough to fit inside of a teacup, naked, shivery little things with bug eyes. There's an object lesson here, but I'm not sure what it is. But two of them always also, by the way, made their way on Sundays to church, and they prayed unflailingly. And so all those students would walk, a bunch would peel off to the local cafe, let's call them Methodists, coffee and apple pie Methodists, dollop of ice cream, vanilla, of course, which makes for the Methodists' theological sense. Another would peel off into the local American Legion Club. Let's call them Catholics. And they would do so because on Friday evenings, the local Catholic priest who actually ministered to two churches, Father Thibodeau by name, attended bar in that American Legion Club, he being a World War II veteran from the 1st Infantry Division. And what better place for confession than an American Legion Club serving only 3-2 beer? Rumor is it that he poured a generous pint, played a rowdy accordion, and was unbeatable at nine ball. At least two of those things likely learned in seminary. And so they would walk up the street, these young people, up a slight increase, they go past Billy Raymer's post office, who married his clerk, by the way, Spinster L. McClaret, famous for her peonies. They would walk by Vigo Miller's dry goods store, John Lillianquist's one chair barber store, town's only Yankee baseball fan, past the co-op creamery, past my own father's implement business, next to the community fire station. Now they're on the eastern side of this small town, and the rest of these young people then would peel off to the Baptist church, white, clappered, high steeple, Lutheran youth off to the other side to their stolid red brick church with a heavy wooden door. Two churches right across from each other in that small town sort of faced off, denominational face off. There would be some noisy chattering, too, by the way. Within an hour, all those young folk, again, would be walking all the way back down Main Street to the public school and their public school lunch, making plans for the weekend. Lunch, classes, afternoon activities, sports, band practice, you name it. Some, of course, stuck in the purgatory of detention, present company excluded. Now, this ritual had been going on in that small town for decades. And it was part of the local culture just as much as cellar band concerts, ice cream socials. And what it did is it stressed the importance of character formation within the framework of local associations, especially family, church, and local community. Public schools, town, township, all rooted in religious understandings and embodied in local common law. The place was healthy, even if a bit sleepy on a July or August afternoon. Came a time in which the superintendent received an official missive from the Minnesota State Board of Education. This is about 1963 or so. The bureaucracy was issuing cease and desist orders since that 11 o'clock Thursday time was called religious release time education. And that fussy education bureaucracy had decided that such was a violation of the wall of separation between church and state. 
So a cease and desist order or you're going to lose all your funding. You'll lose your certification. You could suffer a lawsuit brought against you by the State Board of Education. So imagine that, this little bitty town and an inversion of an outside force against those small town folks, against which what might call their birthright, their civil liberty, their First Amendment rights, their religious liberty within the framework of their own little public square. Because you see, the folks in this little local town culture had their own cultural standards not set by outside folk, elite experts, Thursday religious release time education was part of that community's membership, its identity. And it was a good, good community of faith and goodwill and mutual neighborly help. But likely a little backward, according to those experts who tended to look down their noses at rural folk. So to cease and desist then would tear away one very, very important part of that community's decades and decades of their own cultural history. And so transform the place then into something very, very different with a new and much, much more secular kind of identity, different from their own cultural inheritance. Those stout souls had believed in their duty to pass on to their children unimpaired and part of their own created order, a kind of faith testament shared regardless of denomination and carried out in their own small town public square. Now the question would be, were these folks wrong all those years, living their lives that way? Well, this was background to this lecture, to this topic that Father Tomlinson forced me to do. <laughs> Nicely, religious liberty. And it brings me now to part two of your outline, a bit of context from ancient history. So it seems now, you see, that this notion of religious liberty has some history because it involves, again, basic civil rights, which is a notion that is even dating all the way back to Roman times and argues that citizens are protected from infringement by governments, by social organizations, and by other private individuals but it still took those old Romans a good period of time to agree to treat Christians benevolently, in fact, up to the third century, or to give that infant religion, Christianity, legal status. But even then, the purpose was less the value of Christianity and more the desire that the public order would be secured and therefore the Roman state secured. So it's hard for us to imagine that in that Roman empire, there was a requirement for all Roman citizens to affirm loyalty to the imperial cult, which would enforce religious conformity, albeit pagan. So Christianity was considered an illegal superstition. In time, there were some edicts which began to grant religious freedom but always with the provision that Christians have the right to exist as long as they do not go out and offend against the public order. Now, if you know history, then you know that as Constantine moved toward Christianity, legislation discriminating against Christians was removed from the Roman statute books when that fledgling church then was given positive assistance 
the moral principles of the gospel began to influence civil legislation and marks the beginning of what came to be known as Christian Roman law. And so what's the point? Well, imagine again that there is such a place called the public square. There would be no wall of separation inside that public square between Judeo-Christian perspectives and Greco-Roman perspectives. So the public square would be this wonderful little place where the similarities between Judeo-Christian and Roman perspectives on law and faith and reason and the duties of the individual could be discussed, compared, and contrasted by citizens in conversation. So imagine now a time, say 315 modern time, downtown Rome, a coffee shop, and some folks are meeting in this place called the public square, and they all sit down for a chat. The Greco-Roman folks, they start the ball rolling by asking something like this, so what do you Judeo-Christian folks think about human sacrifice? We do it all the time because we've got these polytheistic gods and they require it now and again to satisfy their bloodthirsty appetites. Christian folks say, well, there's only one God, monotheistic, and the last and final blood sacrifice occurred on Calvary a while ago. And so to continue any practice is immoral. Now, being a bit facetious here, but unless we prudently understand this historical ground plan necessary, we so easily over time in history lose the original meanings of things. So with religious liberty then granted legal status, the public order is secured, and thus the order of the state is secured, but always, always, I think, with this provision. The Judeo-Christian perspective is that order in the soul is a necessary provision leading to order in the state. The Greco-Roman perspective is that order in the state is what leads to order in the soul. So here's a larger point then. When we think about this, we come to understand that religion is more deeply rooted than politics, which are even farther down the river than culture. Unless we happen to think that politics is what shapes a people's character. And by the way, economics too. I don't buy it. Part three. Context again in another beginning with what's called the Glorious Revolution, then the English Bill of Rights. Because now there's a long period of history up to the 17th century when the English we're reviving the idea of rights based upon citizenship, a cultural history of common law then being codified by guys like Coke and Blackstone. The time was 1689, and that period in British history, the Glorious Revolution, and one consequence was the adoption by Parliament of the English Bill of Rights and the argument that kingship was conditional which meant that the monarchy did not rule by divine right, but were more often than not a whole big cause of mischief. And so I mention that now because if we've got this background in our own country, we are now at the point of identifying the Virginia Declaration of Rights, the United States Bill of Rights, but for the English now, the Bill of Rights 
then led to a social contract between government and a legislative act that came about in Parliament in 1689, and it was called the Toleration Act. But again, I think it's so very, very easy to lose the original meaning of things. And it might be interesting another time just simply to sit down and try to figure out what that phrase social contract even means. See again how the original meaning of the thing has become inverted. So what was the purpose of that Toleration Act in 1689? Freedom of worship to what were called at that time nonconformists, which means, of course, Baptists, Congregationalists, and so on, but it was not granted to Unitarians. <laughs> There's some limit to toleration. <laughs> so <laughs> what does that English Bill of Rights then say? Again, it limits the power of the monarchy becoming in time then figureheads. It led to guarantees of free elections, freedom of speech in Parliament, cruel and unusual punishment. But it also owned inside of it a very, very, very big mistake because the Toleration Act also legally allowed Protestants to own guns. <laughs> you see, the gun debate's been going on for a long, long, long time. So it limits, again, the powers of the monarchy. The historical point now for us, though, is it turns out to be very inspiring because even though the British Constitution is uncodified, not like our own, compared to our own, but by the beginning of the 1700s then, we need to note that that thing called the English Bill of Rights owned argument and effect in every single part of the Commonwealth, which included at that time, by the way, the original 13 colonies. And so what again? Got to remember the time period, 13 colonies, part of the United Kingdom, and therefore citizens guaranteed the same liberties as all those folks back in England. So the English Bill of Rights asserted that rights and liberties were something not newly established, but ancient and part of time immemorial, which means again fundamental to common and natural law and included, by the way, freedom of speech, but mostly for the figures in Parliament. And then there's this important, important point because that English Bill of Rights prevented the king or the queen from subverting religion anywhere in the Commonwealth. So our interest is again in background and how those proceedings then, relative to religious liberty, made their way across the Atlantic and became associated in time with our own Declaration of Independence, the Virginia Declaration of Rights, and the Bill of Rights as part of our own Constitution, and the right then to go about freely living our daily lives, which supposes religious liberty in the public square. Part four. More context and in time, the American experiment of self-government under law. So here's what we know. We know that Thomas Jefferson was asked to sit down and write a piece of parchment containing grievances and then a defense of why it is that American folks living in 1776 wished their independence. So Thomas sits at his desk and he's cogitating, he's thinking, he's got his pen in his hand, he's got a job to do. He has for inspiration on his desk a book by John Locke, which comes from 1690. And that book is titled To 
Treatises on Civil Government, in which now Locke writes about English customs, common and natural law, political philosophy, natural rights, and social contract theory. Locke writes, quote, that being all equal and independent, no one ought to harm another in life, health, liberty, or possessions, which we know is in keeping at that time with both common law and natural law in the British realm. And again, which Locke argued predated not only the English Bill of Rights, but he took it all the way back to Magna Carta, which was the great charter eventually signed by King John in 1215, and also something, again, I think terribly, terribly misunderstood down through the ages. So his background then, Jefferson is sitting there cogitating, and what he does is he takes what Locke wrote and he Americanizes it. He says the following, with an American argument, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, here comes the good phrase, and that they are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. You can see Locke in there, but you can also see the fine little adjustments that Jefferson made. So it's close to what Locke wrote, but then when Thomas adds, endowed by their creator, he replaces Locke's notion of possessions with happiness and says it's a pursuit, and he never, ever, ever explained it. Here's what we know. Simultaneous now to what Jefferson is writing in Virginia, George Mason, for whom there's a college named, is authoring the Virginia Declaration of Rights, which were adopted on June 12, 1776. Mason writes, quote, about the enjoyment of life and liberty with the means of acquiring and possessing property and pursuing and obtaining happiness and safety. So what does this have to do with religious liberty? Well, my sense is, again, we've lost the meaning of the pursuit of happiness and safety. And now it's strange, but if you fire up your computers and go to Google, and you enter that phrase, pursuit of happiness, you're going to find reference to a movie star, some guy named Will Smith, and that the pursuit of happiness is a euphemism for wealth, without which there is no such thing as the good life, which means, I think, again, that what we want to call the American dream has been usurped, and we have, again, lost the real meaning of things. But suppose we argue now that Jefferson believed that there's a positive link between religiosity, spirituality, and happiness. And so in other words, when free to go out and about and engage with a religious organization, when free then to believe in something greater than oneself, when free to live a life within a faith tradition, religious and spiritual people own higher levels of happiness. When not free to act on that pursuit, unhappiness. And so I think it was important that Jefferson is noting this for us, that inside the public square was a place then for civic, respectful engagement with other people, while the spirit of the creator 
remained in the midst. And all of which, by the way, strengthens our charity. And so for Jefferson, you see, the logic would have been something like this, reasonable common sense, cause and effect, meaning that religious liberty would be the cause and the effect would be happiness and positive relationships with others in the public square, as well as learning how to cultivate sacred moments in daily life, which, by the way, could even occur at 11 o'clock on a Thursday morning in Gopher Prairie in southwestern Minnesota. So what else? We know that Jefferson was an acute observer of phenomena and spent time on his own meditative acts, even if the meditation was, how am I going to improve my home once again, once again, once again, once again, once again. Fuss budget that he was. Religiosity, I think he knew, teaches daily spiritual exercises and provides people with perspective and hope and a much, much deeper sense of meaning. And in the largest sense, there's little difference between a spiritual meditative act and prayer. And so forgive me for a moment for spending time on this, but this notion of happiness has a venerable, venerable history, including, by the way, Book 3 of St. Thomas Aquinas' own Summa Contra Gentiles, in which the angelic doctor sets out a systematic answer to the question of what human happiness is and whether it can be obtained in this life. And he answers that perfect happiness is not possible on earth but an imperfect happiness is. That places him, by the way, in a kind of midway position between Aristotle, who systematically argued that, well, perfect happiness in this life is okay, and then St. Augustine, who taught that happiness was impossible and that our main pleasure consists merely in anticipation of the heavenly afterlife. Best to get through this world as fast as we can. I'm going to leave it to Father Smith, Father Tomlinson, and Paul, first-rate minds all, and well-tuned to first things to explain their own position. But for me, I'm one with that guy back in Cofer Prairie tending bar in that American Legion Club on Friday nights while working that accordion and pouring a mean pint and lording the pool table. Part five, that sacred canopy and the First Amendment to the American Bill of Rights and a promise on the part of your old professor and me not to mention the lemon test. This is what Justice Clarence Thomas said recently in his dissent on Lawrence v. Texas, which came out in 2003. Our body of law has become uncommonly silly. Nobody answered his dissent. So a bunch of guys meet now one summer in Philadelphia, 1789. Benjamin Franklin is there. He arrives every single day in this wonderful kind of sedan chair, carried along. Everyone there walked or came in on their horse-drawn carriages. And they got things done, more or less. But then there's this group of people called the Federalists, and they argued that the Constitution did not need a Bill of Rights, because the states kept any powers not given to the federal government, the anti-federalists then held that a bill of rights was necessary to safeguard individual liberty. So what? Well, it's interesting because James Madison now, then a member of the House of Representatives, 
thought, all we really need to do is change some wording in the original Constitution, forgetting that the thing had already been ratified. And others argued then that the House of Representatives had no authority to go back and change the wording in the Constitution. And so you got a problem then. And they set about then with the amendments. And there were 17 at the beginning. 12 then were approved by the Senate. When sent to the states, only 10 were ratified. So the business concluded then on December 15, 1791, and that would suggest, well, there's got to be an end to all of this. But let me make this point. There's a portion of public opinion these days which believes that this Bill of Rights, inalienable rights, are given to the we the people by the government. As opposed, say, to what Jefferson wrote about the creator endowing us with inalienable rights, which means cannot be surrendered or transferred. We so easily lose original meanings. So then, the First Amendment, obviously placed there, I think, for its importance. But notice when you read it, the order of the clauses in that First Amendment. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion, number one, or prohibiting the free exercise thereof, or abridging the freedom of speech, or of the press, or the right of the people peaceably to assemble and to petition the government for redress of grievances. Now, the other nine are important. But if you ask me my opinion, this first one is the most important. It's the canopy. It's the umbrella. And I think it's sacred. And the other nine rights in the original ten are sheltered under this canopy, this first sacred canopy. And so all of the clauses then, in this one long, simple compound sentence here, are arranged in grammatical parallel fashion. Note how they are arranged as if they were a bundle, like a bundle of wheat neatly tied together. Now the point is, if we pluck one from that bundle, we're going to give that one more importance and it would prohibit then the other clauses from informing and influencing each other. Which, in other words, if one of the clauses then is always thought to be more important than the others, it's to argue that all of the others derive their life or their essence from that one being most important. So we need to note an interesting issue here now. This is a bit of a sidebar. It'll take me a little bit of time to get through it here and then I'll return. But there's something else that appears in history. And we need to take note that at this time period, some states were explicit about the need for a thriving religion. And so when these 13 states then owned what were called general powers, that meant that we know the taxing laws were in existence in at least three states, Massachusetts, Connecticut, and New Hampshire. These were religious taxes, but the taxpayer was given the option of designating his taxes to the church of his choice. In 1801, there's a church in Danbury, Connecticut, sent a letter to then newly elected President Thomas Jefferson, expressing concern over the protection 
of their religious denomination against more established religion, which in Connecticut would have been Congregationalism. Now, in Jefferson's letter back then to that Danbury congregation, he explained his belief about the meaning of the No Establishment Clause in the First Amendment, which argued that the federal government could not interfere with their church. So his point is well taken. But it's the letter that Jefferson sent to that Danbury congregation, which uses a phrase that appears as if it's part of the No Establishment Clause in the First Amendment. This is how it reads, thus building a wall of separation between church and state. That's the source of that phrase. It's not in the First Amendment. So the next day then, after sending off this letter, Jefferson attended a church service in the House of Representatives and suggests that maybe he was giving symbolic support for religious faith and its beneficial role in Republican government. Now, the point is that Jefferson was arguing that persons of common sense and conscience have a natural right to worship, which says that the government cannot interfere since religious liberty is consistent with everyone's social duties and is also part of the social contract in Republican government. So the letter now is renowned for that single phrase, wall of separation between church and state. Now you can ask people about this, where does that appear? And they'll say it's in the First Amendment, but it's not there. So the problem again, well, it's been used by the Supreme Court of the United States to describe the relationship between religion and government, even though Jefferson never, ever, ever intended his letter to be used as the foundation for Supreme Court case law. So the problem is one of intent, which is awkward because Jefferson was in France when the Bill of Rights was being adopted, being bandied about. He exchanged letters with medicine, but had nothing to do with it. So here's the problem now. Did Jefferson intend that the wall encloses church and everything outside that wall then is state? Or did he think the wall encloses state and everything outside is church? If you ask me my opinion, it's the latter. So the wall of separation business now has been used, argued over and over, and has been cited in over 50 Supreme Court cases beginning in 1878. In a case titled Reynolds v. United States, in which a unanimous court held that the First Amendment clause did not protect religious practices that were judged to be criminal, such as polygamy. So the wall of metaphor has a bit porosity. Now, a couple more things. There was an Alabama statute that authorized public school teachers to set aside one minute at the beginning of each day for a moment of meditation or prayer. Supreme Court ruled that the Alabama statute violated what the court said is a wall of separation. It was a 6-3 decision. And this case is called Wallace v. Jaffrey et al. and was decided in December 1985, that decade of what we know as culture wars and also the heyday of the Burger Court. 
It's a confusing decision. One of the dissents comes from Justice Rehnquist, whom you may recall. And he said, such was a misinterpretation of Jefferson's letter. Then Chief Justice Warren Burger made the argument in his dissent that the Alabama statute was not unconstitutional because there was nothing inside that statute that sought to establish a state church. Students in public schools had a right to pray or meditate as much as they wanted. Now, there are precedents, of course, but it's not our business here right now to recite all of these instances of constitutional law, even if those precedents, again, are with us to this very, very day. And I hate to use that word because it's coming up in all those hearings this week. Precedent, precedent, precedent. Even though, and I'll briefly note one here called Engel v. Vitale, 1962 landmark case and from the Earl Warren Court. So a group of folks now, led by a man named Stephen Engel and a few others, one Lawrence Roth. Now, Roth, first of all, claimed that he was an atheist. And then he shifted ground and said, no, I'm not, but I'm, in fact, a spiritual person, but I'm very, very uncomfortable with prayer. And the point was, a prayer. And it reads like this. Almighty God, we acknowledge our dependence upon thee, and we beg thy blessings upon us, our parents, our teachers, and our country. Amen. So who wrote the prayer? Well, first of all, the whole business of this was voluntary in the New York public school system. And second of all, the prayer was written by the New York Board of Regents. And so I've got a mixed metaphor here, I realized this morning. And so the can of worms, the floodgates open. So that's a mixed metaphor. Which, forgive me, because the Supreme Court then, you see, ruled that that prayer breached Jefferson's wall of separation and was prescribing a religious activity and promoting a family of religions, those that recognize Almighty God, which the Warren Court said then violated the No Establishment Clause. And this, by the way, after 22 other states had filed amicus briefs with the court supporting the position of the New York Board of Regents. And so we know that over time and time, the case has been cited precedent after precedent, which would prevent them and ban even student-led prayer. And you folks are familiar with this issue. And it bears mentioning because that case which was decided by the Warren Court in front of the Chief Justice by the same name, who argued, it's very, very important to pay attention to the document of the Constitution and the Bill of Rights itself. But there's this vast penumbra of emanations surrounding the document which suggests that constitutional decisions concern not only the text itself, but that the text sort of floats in a vast and deep ocean of ideas, and the Chief Justice said, and yes, even imagined experiences. Now, there's a fellow at Harvard, very fine constitutional scholar in some corners. His name is Lawrence Tribe. And he remarks that this penumbra owns an existence impossible to deny, and refers to it then as the invisible constitution. And he has a book by the same title, which he says now is not based upon the text itself, but upon what people 
think the text says. So, if people think it's in the Constitution, well, if that's what people think, it's in the Constitution, even though it's invisible. Yes, really. So if sometimes it's, it's fun to take something like this and read a piece from the Communist Manifesto and say, where, where does it come from? What's in the Constitution? <laughs> so again, when, when, the, when the justice says our body of law has become uncommonly silly. So part six, now, I'm, how did all this happen? And I'm very glad that you asked. You have to remember how I described that First Amendment now as a bundle, all neatly tied together. Suppose for one reason or another that it's decided that one of those wheat stalks is more important than another. Which one would it be? It's been argued and has become a classroom activity that freedom of speech is the most important clause in that First Amendment. Now, I'm not much on creating an index of censorship, but I'm one with the belief that it's important for a person to think as he or she likes, but I think it's much more important what that person thinks. What passes for free speech these days is often not backed by either ethics or reason, but by a shady, shady word now called opinion. And so what's interesting, you see, is the manner in which then freedom of speech has been given priority over the free exercise of religion by giving freedom of speech priority the other clauses then in the first amendment have been relegated to a lower lower status and how do we know this because it's being taught by such places as the judicial learning center and they make up these lesson plans and these lessons plans go out into schools and they have debate points and so on and the Judicial Learning Center argues that freedom of speech is the foundation on which all other First Amendment freedoms are based, and from which they then draw their essence. They go so far also as to violate the order in which the clauses appear. Speech and press first, religion now following along a distant second. Now, my authority here is a man by the name of Peter Berger, and he's got a noteworthy book called The Sacred Canopy. And he argues that religious liberty is what provides the sacred canopy of values stretching over society and then providing a shield that protects people from uncertainties and from meaninglessness in life. Now, I have some points of disagreement with Berger, but believe he's on point when he argues that scientism, globalization, media saturation, and postmodernism have led to then an increasing loss of meaning and the slow, slow disappearance of that sacred canopy metaphor. By giving freedom of speech priority, our once affirmative-looking culture has in fact become demoralized, if not vectoring its way off into nihilism. Whereas freedom of religion in the public square has always acted as a compensator by offering a universe of first principled meaning. One result also has been, I think, the loss of the public ability to be offended. It's one reason why I don't like to go to airports anymore. 
So the general view then rests, you see, on the assumption found nowhere in our Constitution that it's possible to separate inside the public square our daily lives from religious liberty, when in fact the original intention was that these things would always be overlapping. Now that becomes, I think, a way, way, way too secularized view of human nature. Part seven. The conclusion to the news from Gopher Prairie in Minnesota. So again, remember that religious release time activity in that small town, that small public square, which was now falling short of that State Board of Education's directive. I mean, what was it other than an attempt, you see, by a very small group of people out there in the middle of the prairie? Small group of people to do what they could to locate order in their lives within a religious reality which was in existence at the beginning of time. For them, it was a necessity without which it would be difficult for them to maintain order in their little public square, a sacred order under a sacred canopy, and to help them educate their children as they saw fit. Now, when that business then reached a boiling point, the little membership held a meeting in the school gymnasium, which started with a prayer. So the school board came in, and the floor was open for discussion, but you can imagine the discussion was lively and tinged with fear. What to do, what to do, what to do. Lively discussion. And the chairman of the school board came up into that lectern, and he stood there for a moment. And when the membership quieted then, he spoke softly into the microphone, and he said, well, suppose we don't tell anybody. That was my father, my old dad. Suppose we don't tell anybody. Are they going to drive 150 miles to check up on us? And by the way, so they didn't tell anybody. And they continued religious release time education until another edict came along. And this is one they couldn't reckon with. And it was called consolidation. And so they did. They consolidated and then consolidated again and then consolidated again a fourth time. Today, that public school building in that little bitty town is an empty, decaying building. And consolidation has now led to fewer students graduating than I graduated those many years ago. The population of Gopher Prairie is half the population it was before when they let out those students to practice religious liberty in their public square. And all seems today a kind of receding place in memory. And one wonders if anything can ever, ever, ever preserve Gopher Prairie's existence in future time. Or will those churches also become abandoned? What are people for? We might ask ourselves at the end here this evening. Religious liberty and salvation, surely. But the temporal answer again is happiness. Even if it is only for our time on earth, living daily with Felicity and with her twin brother, Fidelity. Thanks very much.